Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andrew. I'm Alvin Tejo. And I'm Karima Tawar Kapoor. Friends, we are back after taking a week off. I think we're all vaccinated now. Are we all vaccinated? Friday. I got on my appointment on Friday. Although I very much considered the 36-hour marathon that the Region Appeal was doing. I saw Dr. Lowe on CBC News at 11 p.m. on Saturday night, and he said, there are still appointments available for 2.30 a.m. to 6 a.m. You can come on right now. And it was like, no, I'm too old for that. I can't do that. Well, yes, I must admit, summoning the energy to write the the thing after dealing with the Pfizer sleepies as I as I experienced them was not in the cards. But yes, I took a week off, which I feel like may have been a, you know, uh, questionable decision as the Rage Against Doug Ford has grown our listenership uh, quite substantially. So for those of you uh, who are new to the pod and have recently subscribed, uh, welcome. We have lots to get through today. First of all, I want to talk a little bit about the one-dose summer. The Trudeau government has announced with vaccination rates set to exceed the U.S. and case counts falling. We'll talk about where we are in the pandemic and how we think the provincial and federal government should manage the next steps. We will talk about a new Auditor General's report that found poor tracking and management of about $4.4 billion in COVID-related expenditures. But first, I wanted to chat about the new strategy the Premier's office has cooked up to manage the backlash from the public rage over the third wave of COVID-19, which appears to be hiding the Premier from public view. A CTV News reported last week that the Premier's office would like ministers and public health officials to wear their decisions more and that they needed to protect the king. A couple of great quotes that stuck in from this article. The whole world went upside down on us, a quoth one conservative staffer in the premier's office about the disastrous April 17th news conference, which tanked the polls for the conservatives to the point where the Ontario Liberal Party is competitive for the first time in a long time. Another conservative staffer said anonymously, nobody has taken any accountability. Another uh, said that Doug Ford has worn it all. A third source said that Every time the premier is out of the public eye, the polls move in the right direction. So I guess I just want to start by asking about how we are feeling about this strong, steady leadership that we are receiving here in the province of Ontario. Don't everybody jump at once. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, should we keep this deafening silence? Um... <laughs> yeah, I'm keeping the silence. <laughs> like, we're just speechless. <laughs> I thought Martin uh, Reg Khan's article this weekend, I don't know if, if folks saw it in the star, w- was good. I think it, you do have to wonder like if they can really bounce back, like to, to go down once and bounce back is I think a pretty normal political phenomenon, but he's already been down once before and this is, you know, the second time. So you do wonder if this will work, but yeah, he was too much in people's faces at a time when they were doing a bunch of unpopular or stupid things. So I think it makes sense as a strategy, whether it will uh, work or not, I think remains to be seen. But I think like he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. I don't think that's, you know, a surprise to anybody. And like he was able to lean on his folksy charisma through, through the beginning stretch of the pandemic, because that's really what people were looking for, right? Like a bit of comfort from their leadership. People don't People are done with that, right? People just want competence and for this to be over. And so I think it probably makes sense to have people try to forget about him. Yeah. 
I'm always amazed at how many times politicians need to learn the same lesson over and over again. In the last election in 2018, you know, their numbers were kind of okay, but Doug Ford didn't really shoot up to the front of the pack until he had that, you know, look at the strength of what my bench could be. Look at all these professionals who work in the private sector, in the public sector. Look how strong my cabinet is going to be. We're going to be a team of leaders. uh, And it's not just me, you know, calling all the shots. And then his numbers bounced back. And then he kind of rode that into the premier's office. And then during this pandemic, it's all been him all the time. And I think it's too little too late. You can't roll out all these other people and expect that they've been part of this decision-making process the whole time when people know that's not true, right? People know that, yeah, maybe some of these decisions that they've made have not been universally adopted internally, but the premier's office kind of throws their weight around and does whatever the hell they want to do. So this is all just cloak and dagger stuff that people see through considering the evidence of the last several years, right? So I think they could have done this if they this was part of their strategy the whole time. We're a strong team of conservative leaders, but that's not what they're doing. So I call BS and I think everyone else does too. And yeah, he deserves the numbers that he has, but he's also not taking any responsibility for anything, right? So it makes sense if he's going to wear it, from now on, if you're going to replace him. But if you're not going to replace him, I don't know. I don't know what you can do at this point if other than try to disperse the blame, which they're trying to do, but that doesn't help anybody at the end of the day. I, th- I think the question is, though, like, if for me, first of all, this is not a very hot take, but when I hear protect the king, I think of the Lion King for some reason, and I don't know why. Like, that is where my head goes. <laughs> but in any case, aside from my Disney references, I, for me, it's you know, whether it's the premier that sort of is held accountable or the ministers in government, the question is, why aren't you just doing the things that are necessary to get out of the pandemic and that, you know, are smart policy wise, are smart research wise, and whether it is plays into the conservative base or not, I'm not sure, but is also politically popular, right? Like, this idea that what is right from a policy perspective on many pandemic response issues and others, whether it's on education or other healthcare issues, whether it's on the environment, what is what is politically popular is also popular from a good evidence-based policy perspective. So I just, I don't understand the shirking away from the public when it's so obvious what you could do to rectify the situation. Yeah, I mean, that would require him being an actual leader, right? (laughs) (laughs) And there is this really interesting thing that has been fairly opaque, the the whole pandemic, in terms of like what the actual decision making structure for these large public health decisions has been, and the degree to which Doug Ford is has been in control of it versus has been the face for it. And I think that, you know, he is very much they've tried to project a picture where he is in control of it. I mean, he even down to that like action jacket that he got at the beginning of the pandemic that was clearly stylized after the, you know, the famous presidential one that you see in all of the movies. Like, you know, they really tried sort of putting this image around him. And so I think it is interesting because I think a lot of ministers might confidentially say that the premier's office has already been too involved in their decisions. And I'd be interested to know what what the background chatter is and if maybe there are some line, some ministers or health officials or bureaucrats who sort of feel like this is the, you know, getting potentially getting thrown under the bus a little bit, you know, uh, given that 
I don't know. I think my experience with government is that, you know, nothing really happens without the premier's office is okay. It is truly, they are the only office in all of government. They can kind of say no to everything across, you know, they can like, the power is very centralized in them. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic. Also, if I'm thinking about the Lion King, maybe we can call our next uh, segment. If, you know, things get worse for Doug Ford about, I just can't wait to be king. You know, who can't, like, is that Monty McNaughton? Is that, you know, there's a, there's probably a cool naming segment we can do about that. Before leaving this for a second, before leaving this sort of interesting new shift in the political strategy for the Ford government, I want to talk polling for a second. So Abacus Data in mid-April had the Liberals and the Conservatives polling evenly at about 34%. I think uh, I saw a recent poll that had the Liberals slipping a little bit, but still just behind the PCs. However, in a question about preferred premier, Doug Ford was still well in the lead at 28%, and Stephen Del Duca was third place. To me, this says that the liberal vote may be potentially a bit of a protest vote right now. And I'm wondering just how we read this. I mean, we keep talking about Doug's demise at the same time. What has he dropped since the last election? Six, seven percent? Like it's not overwhelming. And clearly the liberal brand and, you know, former interim leader John Frazier said this all the time, right? Like the brand is strong, don't damage. The brand is clearly more familiar to people than the leader is at the moment. And that's why, you know, I don't think people are responding to who Steven is because they don't know who he is yet. And Doug is still, you know, that number is still pretty close to what his party is doing. So he's still almost as par- as popular as his party is. So I would say the conservative base is still there. They're trying to show their dissatisfaction with what the government is doing, but it's not like they're abandoning these these people in droves, right? They probably still think that the government is ultimately doing the right thing, even though all of them did agree in April to all those decisions that were were put on that were almost immediately taken back. So, you know, who is the alternative in that situation? I don't know, but I think they're pretty stable and this is where we're going to be for a little while until the pandemic really ends. I mean, obviously the liberals have to be feeling pretty good that the if you want to call it a protest vote or parking, the vote is ending up with them and not the NDP, who's the official opposition, right? And if that narrative sticks around for, you know, a few more months and gets closer to the 2022 campaign, I would think that the NDP vote would soften even further, right? Because there tends to be a group of people that will coalesce around whatever progressive parties in first, which you know, damaged the liberals in obviously in 2018, but, you know, could flip back. And so, you know, to, to the points made, obviously the awareness levels in those polls of who Stephen Del Duca is remains low. It's also not a great time for him to be, you know, running hi, I'm Stephen Del Duca ads or, or doing any of the traditional things that you would do to, to solve that because we're in the middle of a pandemic. So, you know, it's a weird time. It's anybody's guess what, how stable these numbers are, but, you know, to Alvin's point, the difference between 32 and 40 in Ontario politics for the PCs is not in government and a majority government. And so they've sustained some serious damage, whether it sticks remains to be seen, I guess. Yeah. And maybe represents a risk in this sort of protect the king, let's get Doug Ford out of the public eye strategy. Because one thing that I think every opposition party, people that I talk to who express a lot of frustration that this time has elevated the profile of leaders and of people in government. And it's really hard to get 
attention as an opposition party if the government is out there every day and the premier is out there every day announcing things of substance and the press is covering those and like the daily briefings and stuff like that. So if that's going to dial back, I wonder if that kind of creates an opening to start potentially introducing more characters to the to the audience, which, you know, is the opposition. But Remains to be seen. So moving on from the politics of the pandemic to how we're actually doing in the pandemic right now. In Ontario this weekend, we hit basically around 2,100 in average daily cases by Sunday, representing a continued decline, which is good thing. Test positivity is also hovering around 5 to 8%, which is down a little bit from where it was, still way too high. But RT is sitting at less than 1 at 0.8. So that is also down from where it was a couple weeks ago. So all positive trends, ICU counts are still high. So it's really important to um, note that our hospital system is still under significant strain. But with vaccination rates on the rise, we, I think, can expect things to continue to be okay. And uh, the province announced just on the day today of recording that they're going to move up the province-wide eligibility by a week. So on the day that you're listening, you can go on to the provincial portal, provided you are 18+, plus, sign up for a vaccine appointment and, and get it, which is pretty exciting. This is after the federal government announced yet another supply increase from meaning that you know the pace that we should we have had with the vaccines recently should be able to continue nestled in this the last week ontario extended the emergency stay-at-home order until june 2nd and announced plans to make teenagers eligible for the vaccine beginning may 31st so i want to talk about a couple of things here reaction to the stay-at-home order extension my first reaction was breathing a sigh of relief that we're seeing negative numbers and we're not just throwing open the doors of commerce yet again. Doug Ford did last time. The NDP and liberals and I think a lot of folks, uh, at least I've seen on Twitter, are pointing out that outdoor gatherings for those with vaccinations are largely safe. So why is the province still maintaining this sort of stay-at-home message um, at this point? What do we think of the province continuing to keep outdoor activities and amenities closed? I actually think it's linked to our last chat, which is they just seem paralyzed by how damaged they felt by the last move they made, that they don't want to make decisions. And so the status quo was the cleanest thing to do. Like, I don't think it makes tons of sense. Even their science tables telling them that the outdoor activity ban is not a good idea. And But they've become seized with this limit mobility thing, which they keep repeating, right? So I don't think it makes tons of sense, I think. People are not listening anyway. You could, across the province, people were out on the first, you know, really nice weekend. And it's not as if there's heavy enforcement. So I think people are smarter than than what the government is, you know, technically allowing. And people are going to start making their own decisions, uh, especially as more and more people get vaccinated. But politically, I don't, uh, yeah. I think it's a bit of a wash because uh, I think the people who are paying very close attention to what the framework allows are probably the most cautious people. And the other thing, though, Sam, is that none of these decisions are made in isolation. People can see what else is happening. And like President Biden just announced last week that everybody who's fully vaccinated can hang out with anybody else uh, who's fully vaccinated indoors or outdoors without a mask. Right. So it's they're here. We keep talking about how we're now getting to the same levels that they are, yet we don't have any of the same policies. And yeah, absolutely. Like me and my kids, we walked through the park this week like it was wonderful, but there were tons of people out. We had our masks with us, but not everybody did. Most people didn't actually. But when who's suffering the most from this process are the businesses that are 
following the rules, right? I mean, individuals can do what they want to sort of still try and enjoy uh, the outdoors, but you know, golf courses, other children's sports and activities, none of those things can open legally, right? So that's still sort of a burden on those businesses. Yeah, I would tend to agree that paralysis like this is not a government that has given me any confidence that it can make and communicate a nuanced decision. The one message that has really influenced public behavior has been stay at home. Like that's the one thing that has actually gotten through. Like every attempt to communicate something more complicated has not, I think, really worked like in the same way that the original like stay at home message was. So I can see sort of like a decision-making table coming to the idea of let's just stick to what we have for another two weeks and yeah people are going to violate it a little bit but it's probably better that we give people over cautious advice and a few violate than you know send a broad signal that things are opening up and potentially you know have people do more stuff so even though i'm annoyed that this is this decision doesn't really follow the science i kind of get it yeah like i think and to build on, Chris, what you're saying, I, I, I really agree. And I think, you know, a little bit of this is for me going back to last summer when I think golf courses were open and, you know, the public was decrying, oh, like golf courses are open and for whom are we making public policy decisions, right? Like who can actually afford to go to golf and have, you know, the leisure time that, that golf necessitates. And so for me, a little bit of this is when we think about you know, if we take an equity analysis and we think about, and I'm not saying that golf is the only outdoor activity that is forbidden, but it feels like everybody latches on to golf when we're talking about outdoor activity. The people that can go out to golf are the same people that, that are sitting at home and living their lives by ordering Amazon packages to their homes. And so, a you know, a couple of weeks more of you not being able to do that because the people that need that are going into work as essential workers that are, you know, whose vaccination rates are increasing. And I know we'll talk a little bit about about our vaccine strategy moving forward. I think I agree with the province on this, and it's probably an unpopular opinion. And it evades what the science is saying today. But if I were them, and I think about what the pushback was last summer, and I think about what the equity issues are right now, I I actually think that it's the right call. I want to jump a little bit off of your equity point, Grima, because another thing the province confirmed, not in their news release, but when asked subsequent questions, was that it would be ending its hotspot strategy. Uh, not that there weren't more hotspots, but you know what they did over the last sort of two weeks was send 75% of new vaccines to the hotspots. Um, and then 25% on a per capita basis. They're going to go back to what has been in place the entire time, sort of more of a 50-50 model. This will actually result in a net decline in vaccines to the city of Toronto. So the city of Toronto has a uh, public health board is obviously not very happy with this, but there are others who have noted that this is the result of the vaccine rate in hotspots now sort of matching the non-hotspot areas of the province. So, you know, so the province obviously wants to stick to its original plan. It's ending its hotspot strategy. Is this, do, what do we think of this as a call? Uh, 
I don't think that it's I don't think that it's the right move at this time. I don't think that we've gotten to that critical mass of vaccinated people that are essential workers, people that again work at the front lines that uh, we were talking earlier uh, before we started recording about Peel's 36 hour overnight vaccination campaign and thousands of people came out and the people that did come out were young people, but it was also shift workers, people that can't get the vaccine during typical office hours because because that's not when they're working and they're working overnight. And, and so there's just, there's a whole host of issues that um, still remain to be resolved. And I think that it's too early to be pulling back from this strategy that has been working. But I also see that, you know, there are communities like in the Porcupine Health Unit and Health Area, for example, where where transmission of COVID is actually increasing. And, and so there's from the province's perspective, again, it's it's thinking about, okay, are we doing enough for regions where they might have not been getting the supply of vaccine necessarily because because they didn't fit into the, the essential versus per capita formula that we had originally or previously, but now we're seeing increased transmission in these areas where healthcare capacity is also very limited. And so from the province's perspective, I think that's what they're trying to balance. I wish that they would communicate that more so people would understand if that's what they're thinking, but I'm not sure. I think they're handcuffing themselves too, right, Karima? Like they, in taking away this tool, they now can't disproportionately increase the amount of vaccines going to the far north where they are seeing much higher numbers per capita now. But they're doing this in favor of a sort of safe strategy communications wise because they're putting the politics ahead of this. They're saying, well, if we just give everybody equal amounts, then we can't really be blamed for you know preferring one over the other. But conversely to that, you really want to take down this pandemic. You've got to attack it where it's flaring up. And you need to give those areas more resources, more staff, more vaccines, all of it. So this seems to be, to me, sort of an abdication of their responsibility of actually making decisions as to who should be getting uh, the vaccines when it's needed. Yeah, this is a really tricky one. And I'm not sure I have the the policy expertise to to really dive in. But I would love to know what the behind the scenes has been because we have not seen, you know, mayors or public health unit officials attacking each other in the media about vaccine distribution. But you just know that there are politics about this behind the scenes where there are folks who feel like, why is Toronto getting all the vaccines where and you know, some of that is probably right. But in Toronto, there are still, and in Peel, there are still areas where there are huge percent positivity numbers, like way above the provincial average, where you're still seeing alarming rates of. So I do kind of wonder if it needed to be one or the other, maybe if there was some kind of middle ground. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting element uh, to this. I mean, it's so short-sighted in the sense that this is also the government that moved. ICU patients from the hotspots, from Peel and Toronto, sent them to London, sent them to Thunder Bay, sent them to Ottawa because they had capacity, which reduced capacity in those areas, right? Like you can't just rely on putting out the fire in the entire neighborhood when one house is completely engulfed and the other ones are just smoldering, right? Yeah, we will see how this one goes out. I can't leave this topic 
before talking about One Shot Summer, which according to the Toronto Star, apparently was a Trudeau original. That was a, a phrase that he he cooked up himself. But it was an interesting shorthand for what Public Health Canada set the expectation of what people could expect to see this summer. So Piac clarified sort of this as outdoor gatherings with folks outside your own family camping. They're really trying to make outdoors like a big theme of this, which does make sense. What do you think of One Shot Summer? Is it going to work? Did it play well? It was pretty widely shared. So curious for thoughts on a One Shot Summer. To riff on Hawk Girl Summer, I, I, I don't understand the like the comms strategy behind it, but I, I guess it works because every my my parents are talking about One Dose Summer or One Shot Summer. So and they did not know about hot girl summer for sure. So, <laughs> so I guess it's working. Yeah, that's my very hot take on that. And I, and I guess from a communications perspective, it's landing. Are people upset <laughs> that they're not going to have their second dose into the fall? Probably, but we're also starting to see research that shows that an interval of three to four months with the Pfizer vaccine actually increases the antibody response and the immune response from the vaccine. So whether intended or not, and maybe NACI already knew this, and that's why they were comfortable with moving away from the original dosing schedule that Pfizer had for their vaccine at the very least, I don't know, but it it seems to work from both a science perspective I think people were clamoring for clarity about when things would start happening. And so I think it had that intended effect of having that sort of clarity and cut through. I also think both the feds and the provinces continue to try to under promise and over deliver. Like I think most people are going to have their second shot well before September, but yeah, no, I I thought it was clever comms. I actually wonder what the AstraZeneca strategy is going to be because they've got a bunch of doses right now. We're only a couple of weeks away from a number of those people being able to actually get that second dose. Get like if one of the benefits to the two and a half million people, including Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau of getting the AZ vaccine is that they could get their second one even earlier and have a two dose summer. I think that would be an interesting thing because then those folks who feel like they maybe got the wrong vaccine would be like, well, actually now I'm, double dosed and I'm good to do what I want in the summer. Yeah. The interesting thing, I think the risk for the Trudeau government in the one shot summer is because it's catchy, it's landing, but is who gets to define what a one shot summer means. And if a one shot summer, my one criticism is the public health Canada Twitter thread had just lots of big open spaces with no people in them. Like, go camping, and here's a picture of a beautiful vista. And I really think that they need to start, like, emphasizing gathering outside is okay. Seeing your friends and family outside is okay. The idea of, like, I can't see my friends and family going on for much longer is, I think that's what's not going to hold. And so it's really what folks come to understand it meaning. But, you know, it's a powerful tool because you can fill One Shot Summer with kind of whatever meaning you want. But based on their first... I mean, I'm going off of just like a Twitter thread here from PHAC, but uh, I was not encouraged that by the content 
in its ability to be very persuasive to Canadians. One last uh, thing I want to turn to today is a report released by the Auditor General of Ontario last week that covered $4.4 billion in COVID spending. And it basically tried to track where it went, how it was reported on, and how generally well-managed it was. I've seen a lot of folks on Twitter cite this as $4.4 million in missing funding and lots of funny jokes about that. But that is not true. It is not $4.4 million in missing funding. And actually, unlike several of the value for money audit reports that we uh, have criticized on this podcast as potentially being outside the scope of the Auditor General, this is a very conventional audit report on financial controls, on how money was spent, and where how it was tracked. So I had a few interesting things that I wanted to talk about with this crew. First, spending on the initiatives tracked was only 34% of what was allocated in the early part of the pandemic and only 64% over the course of the audit. So it kind of supports a narrative that what is being allocated is not actually what is being spent, which we have talked about a couple times. Ministries reporting back to Treasury Board on COVID spending have not always been transparent in what was spent versus what was allocated. And in particular, long-term care does not have a separate tracking mechanism for spending on COVID initiatives at all. There was notably a lot of uh, variation in the effectiveness and the tracking of these programs. So 2,400 uh, physicians were budgeted to use a virtual tool through basically e-health and telehealth. In reality, only 247 did. Long-term care anticipated that Almost over 1,500 additional beds would be made available in long-term care homes. Only 97 were. Pandemic pay was announced in April 2020 and said it was going to flow immediately, but the report highlighted that it did not actually flow until June or July. And finally, there was a big theme of sort of like unclear provincial guidelines around reimbursement policies, creating confusion in the system. So hospitals, public health units were often asked to spend to meet local needs without clear guidance from the province as to what expenses would eventually be reimbursable with provincial money. And this was particularly true with respect to testing, contract tracing, which are super critical to the pandemic response. So yeah, wondering what you guys thought of the report and as former government workers, how explainable all these trends here? Is this something that is particularly the Ford government's fault? Or is this maybe something a little bit more endemic to the public service more generally? I mean, I think we know it's actually harder to spend money than it seems. <laughs> and that government programs and announcements are nice. But uh, from the time of press release to actual cash out the door is a really long time. And as you noted, pandemic pay was announced in April and money flew, uh, flowed to organizations in June and July, my wife, like and most people didn't actually get paid till August, September, right? Like that's a long time. So are, are some of these things just the challenge of announcing programs and, and then having them rev up? I think so. And to be fair to this government, I think that's a lot of what it is. And they didn't actually know what some of these numbers were going to be. We anticipated this and they allocated this. And I think that's fair. One of the other things I want to note, though, is that, as you mentioned at the beginning of this, Chris, most people are harping on the $4.4 billion sort of being lost or missed or not spent. And that number has sort of been the story of this piece so far. Compare that to people's reactions to Kathleen Wynne's last deficit, which was about $3.7 billion. And it seems like a rounding error at this point and people are just, yeah, they could have spent more money, but I don't know. I don't, I'm not seeing the uh, same level of outrage. I read the report and I kept like looking for something that I'd be upset about. Uh, I mean, 
I thought it was kind of a nothing burger, to be honest. I think it was a pandemic. They made a bunch of announcements. It took a bit of time at times to get things and the reporting up and running. I wasn't too worked up. I think the fact that they cut basically a blank check to the hospitals and didn't know exactly how much that was going to cost in the end is not a surprise at all, right? Like that's a very normal, not a very normal, but like for the circumstances, a totally understandable thing to do. I'm having a hard time finding much to get worked up about. I think I'm not, we've talked a lot about value for many audits before, as you've said, Chris, I think from a public service perspective, like it's also really important to recognize that public servants are now working just remotely. And so things that sort of got done in person and quickly through meetings and all of that, now you have thousands of public servants working from home, working from home for the entire public service was not even within the realm of the imagination right before the pandemic. Like public servants would have to like make business cases and argue to work from home one day a week. And whether you would get access to that kind of, if you would be supported in doing that or not was like a big deal. So especially in finance and treasury board where all of these controls happen before money flows out to organizations or to hospitals is a really important factor in thinking about why things take a little bit of time and why some things might have been missed. I agree that given the circumstance, we just needed to get money out. With CERB, we just needed to get money out quickly to people. And I think if we can draw a parallel, we needed to get money out quickly to organizations that were going to be caring for people. And so I I was very, I was taken aback by the Twitter sort of fury that emerged about the $4.4 billion and wanted to read more about it. And then when I did realized, yeah, that it was not, that it was not something to be furious about, but rather I wonder if this is something that we can think, we should actually think of how do we make government better and how do we do government better? Yeah, just that exactly was my thought too, Grima. Like it actually was such a good example of like how public discourse sucks today in a lot of ways, because the $4.4 billion was just the scope of the report. Like, it was not $4.4 billion in missing funding. Like, I saw tweets about Doug Ford being a mob boss and squirreling it away and giving it to developers and stuff, which is just, like, unhinged stuff. But there is tons of stuff in here that you could look at and be like, how do we set up government to manage crises in a better way? Like, I know, like, I totally forgive the government for not making totally clear guidelines about what expenses could get reimbursed in the blank check, that makes sense. But you really do need to understand that like you, that needs to be set up with an expectation that public health authorities have lots of local autonomy, which if we look back to what was happening a year ago, a lot of public health authorities didn't think they had the autonomy to spend. And there's probably lots of, that probably did create slowdown. So it's a reason to look at the authorities in our public health system, because we know based on previous work done, that was a big issue last summer and that did slow things down. The other thing here that did surprise me and that I I need to talk to someone who knows how to like can look at this at a high enough level, but having 
as uneven a COVID expenditure tracking system across all of the line ministries as this report highlighted, having the allocation of funding mixed in with the spending of funding. Like I get the government not wanting to make that super transparent in the budget, but for Treasury Board to have an inconsistent tracking mechanism, it seemed like there was bad information about that between ministries, which does lead me to wonder if the Ford government knows what it is spending all of its COVID money on if the information sharing is that inconsistent between the ministries. So I do think that there's something there in that like, yeah, you're hit with a crisis. You're not going to think about clear expenditure management, but it's pretty, you should at least send ministries a template for track your expenses, track them in this way, show us what was allocated, show us what was spent, do it by initiative. Like that shouldn't have been rocket science. And the fact that, that was not the case did jump out at me a little bit. I mean, yeah. lots of other things to rage about with this government. <laughs> do you think that Treasury Board did not do that? Or is it that like sometimes line ministries are just like this template makes zero sense for the work that I'm doing. Yeah. So like, thanks for your template, but this is how I'm actually going to report what we did because this is what makes sense for us. I just find it really hard to believe that Treasury Board wouldn't have done that and that the inconsistent reporting comes from Again, now a public service that is working not within the same area. And so comms is more challenging. And so in line ministries, just saying, we don't have a lot of time. This is what we know. And this is how we're reporting it back. Take it or leave it. Sure. Yeah. No, and that's probably the report did actually put more on the line ministry reporting than it did on Treasury Board direction. All right. Before we go uh, onto the rapid fire, always love to include Patrick Brown whenever he is in the news. And he is in the news because he visited the house of a former city employee who accused several senior Patrick Brown officials, I guess, of corruption. It is unclear why he visited the home of this employee. But did anyone read this story? Anyone? Any? <laughs> I thought they were the ones being accused of corruption. The person he visited. Anyway, I mean, it's Patrick Brown doing Patrick Brown things. Like, this is, you know. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of issues there. I know there were a number of other officials being accused of some other types of sketchy things. And so, yeah. But I don't know why you just wouldn't disassociate yourself as much as possible. And I thought he was politically savvy enough to know to avoid those types of situations. But, I mean, he's a pretty recognizable guy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah sure. And who's visiting people during a pandemic anyway? So, even, Yeah, even just from a management perspective, like visiting an employee who your organization is in that kind of like an HR process with seems really dicey. I want to talk a little bit about the Sun's crazy anti-vax turn it's taken recently. So here are a few real Toronto Sun headlines. Levy, lockdown madness is just crazy. Warmington, man, 75, listened to politicians, got vaccinated, died five days later. Kinsilla, informed consent being shredded by the AstraZeneca vaccine debacle. Like, <laughs> in, in fairness, in fairness, Joe Warmington has always been a bit of a nut. And he, that they did change that headline after many people pointed out that this man did not die because he got the vaccine. Yeah, I saw some great responses to that, though. It was like, man, 16, goes to school, dies in car accident. Like, these things are not related in the slightest. And they, we were just, like, making shit up. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah, I would just say, and this isn't necessarily about the sun and, it's, and the writers, 
and calmness, but rather just thinking about the anti-lockdown protests that took place over the weekend, the Venn diagram between like white nationalists and anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers and anti-lockdowners is not a Venn diagram. It's like a circle. And so that's my hot take. And I think that pieces like in the sun aggravate and feed into that. Yeah. There's an audience for this, right? Yeah. Like there are these people who are going to these anti-mask, anti-lockdown protests. They need something to read. <laughs> they're reading the sun keeps making it. Uh, and they're gonna keep selling papers, right? Yeah. Like they they're and they're selling advertisements to these people. There's there's a market for everyone, right? And clearly they're serving it. I don't know. We need to do, I guess, our part and not spreading it, but <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I, I the and look, the sun's probably the best thing they're reading. Like, that's probably like there's like what's getting shared on Facebook and in private messages is you know probably way worse. I want to close it today by talking a little bit about the Blue Jays. I'm watching a lot of baseball these days because you know it's one of my few activities that I have to do. But having their best season start in years. But we also heard that summer event, big summer events through to the CNE in August have been canceled already. So it has thrown the Jays season into some. You know, when will we see them back in Toronto? Do we think we'll get to see them in Toronto at all? Is this just like, you know, is it like it would make so much sense to me as a Jays fan if the season that they do really well and like maybe make the playoffs again or something like that is the one where they're not actually playing in the city of Toronto? Like that would just that seems to be in keeping with the Jays brand. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was really looking forward to potentially going to some games in the summer unless you fly down to Buffalo or I guess, drive to Buffalo. I don't know if there are ways to to get to those games, but I'm not encouraging anybody to do that. Uh, I mean, if we're lucky, maybe we'll get to see some playoff games in Toronto. I don't know. I did see the CNA was saying that they might like stop uh, because it's now two years that they haven't been able to operate. And even though it's been running for a hundred and whatever plus years, they might stop because they just can't manage another year without uh, any operations. We got to think of some way to keep some of these large things going i mean you know not to make it just about sports but like i would kill to go to any sport like i don't care about like i don't follow most sports i'm not really a sports person but i watch baseball and i like baseball but you know like if you were like hey there's a badminton game going on down the street you want to go watch like in a field i'd be like yeah let's go like i would be game i would pay money to see it and i gotta think that like as soon as these large events can open again like people are going to be raring to go i mean people want to do things too right i mean yeah people we were harping on golf earlier because you can be pretty distant i mean really distant from the other person but tennis is also applicable in that on the same level baseball i mean really i mean if you're unless you're rounding the bases you're not really interacting with too many other people like there's a lot of sports out there that you can play well we were talking a little bit before the pod about 30 somethings crowding the clubs and <laughs> hopefully it'll also be baseball you know i have a feeling we're not going to you know all the 30 somethings could go to the club once and hate it and then you know we'll have you know a nice events during the day to go to <laughs> as well when this thing ends. i mean the team should do the air show right Everybody stand outside. Let's watch the air show together as a city. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Well, uh, that's it for us today. We will see you next week. And here's where I'll put the outro. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. 
You've been listening to Ontario Loud. We are a podcast about politics and public policy focused on Ontario. Ontario Loud is hosted by Grumatawar Kapoor, Alvin Tejo, and Sam Andrew. I'm Chris Martin. We are supported by amazing volunteers uh, and Harmon Mundy, who helps us do research and communications. He also sends us lots of funny memes in the group chat. Raheem Khan helps us do communications and social media. And we are so grateful for their support. If you like what you heard, go to iTunes and give us a review or head to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and support the pod for less than the price of a cup of coffee each month. It's easy. It helps us support our costs like hosting and technology and helps us keep doing this thing for the long term. If you have any thoughts on what you heard, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud, on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast, or Ontario Loud Mail at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Last but certainly not least, Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabeg, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat people, and many nations. Toronto is governed by Treaty 13, and it is important to acknowledge that too often in our settler colonial society, we make conscious and unconscious attempts to erase uh, this history, and we must do everything we can to fight that. It's about more than a land acknowledgement, but uh, we want to end the pod with one. And we stand in solidarity with the First Nations uh, in our community and acknowledge that we have so much more to do and pledge to do what we can on this podcast to uh, further their cause. That's it for us, and we will see you next week.